Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. We are in a series today uh, that we are calling The Birds and the Bees. And yes, we have been talking about the birds and the bees. It has been pretty intense, especially over last week, where we talked about God's vision for sex and sexuality and how that was designed to be held in the container of marriage between male and female. Um, And what we're going to do today is we're actually going to go a little bit further into that issue. And we're going to look at a counterfeit version of of marriage that's being offered today. And what we're going to do specifically today and distinctly today is we're going to tackle the issue of homosexuality. And so I just want to give the disclaimer for parents in the room, just like we have every single week, that it is a huge priority for us as a church that you have the conversations at the speed you need to have them with your kids. They're not our kids, they're your kids. And so we have spaces and areas prepared for them that are more age appropriate. We have labeled all of these messages as PG-13. And so uh, it's because we feel the Bible is PG-13 and we are going to be no more graphic than the Bible is. But especially today, we will get into the nitty gritty of some of these words and it will be somewhat intense. And so I just would love to just encourage you right now. You can find some of our team in the hall and they'll help you get into a space for your kids uh, to be a little more um, directly ministered to this morning. As we jump into this issue, um, I want to remind you just of kind of like why we're here, right? Um, We've been embarking on this series together. And hopefully what I'm I'm hoping this is for us as a church is a time that is helpful with this topic, but where we can actually expound on and articulate our position, where we come from, the truth that we stand on, but in a way that's not just meant to be like filling filling information into your head, but in a way that's actually leading us to, to, to be stirred to behave in a certain way. Does that make sense? So like the worst scenario for you as a church going person would be just to like constantly accumulate facts in your brain because then your head just gets super big and you can't fit into a room. But ultimately what we want to do is we want to we want to have that information come into our mind, transform us from the inside out, get into our hearts so that we might operate in a certain way. And that's what we're doing today. I'll remind you of the story I told the very first week where as, as a parent in the current cultural climate that we sit in, I'm tired, I'm frustrated, I'm, I'm somewhat just angsty about the constant press that culture has pushed in on us as parents, as us as a church, uh, in our schools, in every different environment. It feels like there is just this constant subliminal messaging. And what we're going to look at this morning is that that actually has been very intentional for the last several years. But I'm also not just, I'm not just like convicted and, and have good clarity on what I believe on this issue. I also, I also want to grow in compassion. Just so you know, as, as your pastor, like I, I want to grow in compassion. I can still remember the table I was sitting at, the restaurant I was sitting at with one of my friends when he came out to me as gay. And I can remember the moment, how that felt. I can remember the thoughts that flooded through my mind. And, and when he, what he said to me was, was, I love Jesus and I love the church and I love being here. And I don't know why this thing in me won't go away. I have prayed, I have fasted, I have sought other people trying to help me and this attraction won't go away. I'm going to try to live this out in a way where I don't act on it ever, but I need you to know that that's something about me. And that's intense and that's real. And I think for a lot of people sitting in this room, I'm not just speaking today on an issue. I'm speaking to a person in your life that you love and that you care for deeply. And I want to remind us on the front end of this, this is not just an issue or a theological position to hold, but these are people that we are called to as the church of Jesus Christ to love them. And so let me just on the front end here establish that we want to move with both conviction and clarity, but also with a great deal of compassion. As as what we're trying to do is we're trying to step into this mess of the world that we live in today. 
where there's all kinds of sexual brokenness, not just around this one issue. There's sexual brokenness all over the place. And what we want to do is we want to stand as a countercultural witness to the world that we're living in to say, no, but heaven's got a better way. Jesus has a better way. The Bible has a different set of rules to live by that will lead you into life. And so, listen, I don't think you're going to be surprised by anything you hear me say today, but I do want to do a thoughtful walk through the scriptures to say, what does the Bible actually have to say on this issue? Preston Sprinkle is an author that I do look up to. I've read A People to Be Loved. And if you have somebody that you love deeply in this community, you need to read this book. It needs to be on your list. In this book, he, he opens with the story where he's sitting on the plane and that dreaded thing happens when you're sitting on a plane and the person next to you wants to chat the whole time. You been there? Golly, it's just the worst, you know? The person next to you, this is just a rule, okay? This is Bible aside, pastoral moment aside, this is just a good coaching moment for all of us. Person has the headphones in, you just let them be in their silence, all right? Just let them go. This guy asked Preston, he's like, hey man, what do you do for a living? He takes his headphone out probably, I imagine it. I'm, I'm embellishing the story now. He takes his headphones out. He goes, oh, you know, I'm pastor, author. Oh, you're an author. What are you writing on? Well, I'm actually writing a book on uh, what the Bible says about homosexuality. The guy gets all heated in a moment. He's like, well, it's clear. The Bible's clear, incredibly clear. And Preston's like, kind of like taken aback. Like, wow. Um, you know, it's just the strength at which you feel this is surprising me right now. Like, I agree with you, but can you tell me where? And the guy just gets more like defensive, more frustrated. He's like, well, I mean, just all over scripture. Like it's everywhere. Like, I mean, you look Old Testament, New Testament, it's, it's, like, it's all over the place. The Bible is clear. It's not okay. It's not okay what they're doing. It's, it's absolutely awful what they're doing. It's, it's, it's clear all over the place. He's like, no, no, listen, like, I, I agree with you. Just to, like, what verses are you speaking about specifically? And he can't do it. And I wonder if we can do it. Is the Bible clear throughout scripture? Is it all over the place? Or does it just happen to be in six verses throughout your entire Bible? which is true, by the way. We'll look at five of them today. One of them, I think, Sodom and Gomorrah, is a story that has a lot more to do than just homosexuality. And so we're actually not going to go into it today because there's a lot of other awful, dark, terrible things that are happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's five other passages that look at it. And we'll, we'll walk through them today. Before we get to scripture, I want to just like maybe tease you with a little bit of a question that says, just what do you actually believe about marriage? What do you believe about homosexuality? Do you believe that it's wrong? Do you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman? Maybe you believe something else and you're in the church today and you think it's not that big of a deal that you believe something different. But I want to challenge you now. How did you get to that belief? We said in week one, what we want to do is we want to have the Bible that informs us on how we go about thinking and believing. So how did you get there? My guess is if you can't name the scriptures that we're going to walk through today, then you might have arrived at your conclusion about what the Bible says about homosexuality. You might have arrived there because we've been caught up in a culture war for the last 20, 30 years that has been brutal and it has been used terminology. I mean, it is, it is words that our surrounding warlike culture have been used to describe protesting and standing up for your rights and getting involved in this kind of issue that we're talking about. And, and I think that we've been a lot more informed by culture than we think we have been. So I want to start with just kind of a brief overview of maybe how we culturally got to this moment that we're sitting in here in 2023. So there's a, there's a book called After the Ball, and it was written in the late, uh, in the late 1980s. And it really is, it's considered a, a manifesto of the gay rights movement of how they're going to go forward in the 90s in response to the AIDS epidemic and it was in response to the growing uh, press that they're feeling from culture that their way of living is not okay. And it doesn't, it doesn't uh, it's not compatible with the rest of the world. And so there's this book written by these two guys. And, and listen, I'll tell you right now, you can't afford this book. It's $185 on Amazon, which is crazy. 
Marshall Cook, Hunter Masden write this book. They are uh, psychiatrists and they're also propaganda experts, okay? And listen, they, they write this from the side of the gay perspective. Here, let me just read you a few quotes out of this book. It said, a continuous flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible. If straights can't shut off the, the shower, they may at least eventually get used to being wet. Here's another quote. The main thing to talk about, the main thing is to talk about gayness until the issue becomes thoroughly tiresome. Next quote. To seek desensitization and nothing more. If you can get straights to think homosexuality is just another thing, meriting no more than a shrug of the shoulders, then, you, then your battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. So again, this was the, the blueprint that was created. I mean, the, the inception of like the gay rights movement that started in the late uh, 1980s, early 1990s, they had three objectives. And this is all from their literature, from their study, from their experts, not from me. But it was to first desensitize the American public to the issue of people being gay. Like just pepper it all the time. If they, if they can't stand the thought of getting in the shower, let's at least let them get used to getting wet. Just desensitize them. Make it so that it's just normal. This is the Thanksgiving Day parade where it just pops up and you're just watching it and you're like, all of a sudden there's two girls kissing. This is the Disney movie. This is the ads that just keep coming up on your, on your feed and to the point where it's like, I'm almost not as triggered as I should be, right? So it's desensitization. Then it's gonna be to jam all other sense of communication around it. So if you have a counter argument or if you disagree in some sort of way, their goal was to jam and to block all that communication. The third one was to convert the American public's beliefs on what this issue really means. So they did that in a three-prong approach. They wanted to first remove it from a disorder in the American psycho psychological um, uh, handbook. So that was objective number one. We had to quit looking at this as a disorder. We got to present it as something that's normative. Objective number one. Objective number two was to go after all of these uh, legal, um, legal laws that were in place in different states, in different towns that prohibited same-sex marriage. So that was the second battle. And they were, they were funded and backed by, by half billionaire style people who leveraged their entire wealth against this issue. And it's just, I'm, I'm just presenting this as historical, factual evidence of what happened. So that was the second battle. The third battle in trying to convert the American public was to convert the church. It was to start to try to rot out or to poke holes in theological beliefs that had been held by the church for a long, long time. And to start saying like, well, can you really believe that that's what that says can we, can we maybe create some confusion around that word? Can we really, can we stir things up around this word? And that, that really, that movement is studied now by culture experts as one of the most successful, one of the quickest cultural shifts that humans have ever been through. Because as you read this, these passages out of the, out of After the Ball, the book here, don't you, aren't you just aware that like, that is exactly the air we're sitting in today. Or it's just normal. You have churches that don't agree on this issue. Uh, you, you have people that have just been completely desensitized. I feel like communication outwardly is just completely jammed up. I've been, I've been completely relabeled as a straight white pastor, as a homophobic, bigoted, intolerant, backwoods idiot who can't get on board with how the, the, how the world needs to behave in today's day and age. So it's been incredibly successful, but it hasn't just been the left and the progressive movement that have really informed that. It is also, I think, just as much we have been victims of the culture war on the right as well. So I think, now listen, I'm gonna say this with all humility because in the 90s when this was going on, I was watching things like Doug and Hey Arnold, okay? Just rugrats. Anyone else? 90s kids? Come on. Like I was not, I was not digesting things coming off of Fox News and CNN. Like I, I was, you know, whatever. Um, 
But if I could like with grace submit to you that I think part of what was happening in the 90s is there was a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. As this gay rights movement started to really pick up some steam and it started to become a lot more overt in its tone and in its messaging and just in the abundance of information that was now out there and in front of us. And I think what that led to was a lot of really defensive measures to really just at all costs, let's protect same sex I'm sorry, let's protect opposite sex marriage. That marriage is, is, that's our goal. We want to protect that at all costs. And marriage is only reserved to be between a man and a woman. Forget the fact that the Bible also talks about pornography. Forget the fact that the Bible also has things to say about divorce. But let's just make this our one trick issue. As churches, as media outlets, like that was the thing to be focused on by the conservative movement, which all like culminated then in the, in DOMA being passed, uh, which was this bill that protected at the federal level the marriage that was, marriage was sacred between a man and a woman. So we have this passed, but do you know who that was passed by? The Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA? It was passed by another, another than Bill Clinton. The irony, right? So I think what has maybe plagued us as a church is maybe a sense of hypocrisy, maybe a sense, a lack of clarity, there certainly now is this movement afoot that has churches questioning what, what they should even believe, what they should even say. Is it even appropriate to have a sermon like this, a series like this? All of that has been kind of had, had its footing rotted out from underneath it by, by both of these kinds of movements that have gone afoot and haven't led us anywhere. They, they've led us to where we are today, which is, which is tough and is frustrating and is wrong in so many ways. That's how we got there. But again, how did you get to your definition of what a marriage is? How did you get to your conclusion of whether or not homosexuality is sinful or not? Was it from the passages that we're about to walk through? Or was it from the culture war that you and I have been caught up in for the last 20, 30 years? See, because scripture does have some things to say. And, and what I want you to notice about my language is I'm going to be intentional as we walk through this series as a, and eventually as we put a statement of faith, what we believe on our website, just to be as forward as we can with anyone who would ever find their way into here as a guest. What we want to say is that we hold to the historic position in the church. So there's a lot of language around, are you affirming or non-affirming? I think that language is unclear. Affirming of what? Non-affirming of what? There are probably things about same-sex attracted people that I would still actually like to affirm. There are things about people who, who aren't same-sex attracted, who are in a uh, heterosexual marriage that I would actually want to not affirm. That I want to challenge them in. And so is it affirming? Is it not affirming? Some people will use the conversation of side A or side B. Side A does not think that homosexuality is sinful, that homosexual marriage is just fine. Side B would say, no, marriage is between a man and a woman only. But again, I think, I think this gets us into a different kind of conversation. It's like side A, side B, what, are we talking about coins here? Like, what are we, what are we doing? Right, but I think the best and most clear language that we can use is the, is the progressive and the historical positions on this topic. The progressive, a lot of people and Christians and thinkers who believe that homosexuality is just fine will self-identify themselves as, as a progressive Christian. And, and that's aligning themselves, that's putting themselves in a certain theological camp. Whereas we are gonna stand in the historical camp. I said this in, in the first week. It, it, is, it is wild that, that Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, every other Protestant stream that you wanna name, until about 50 years ago, all agreed on this issue of marriage historically for the last 2000 years. That's, listen, y'all know churches have disagreed on at least every other topic, right? But they held to this same belief that marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman until death do them part. That's what it's been historically. And so uh, what I want to do now is I want to thoughtfully 
walk through these passages where it addresses homosexuality, I want to show you what the progressive argument is, and I'm going to tell you why I don't think it holds enough weight. Does that make sense? I want to do this. Here's why I want to do this. I see so many young faces in this room. Gen Z, you are getting peppered and hammered constantly that the progressive arguments are the ones that make the most sense. And I want to equip you today to show you what actually does make the most sense. And if you're not in the Gen Z, Gen X, millennial, if you're not in that category and you're just getting hammered with this from your coworkers, your kids, the kids at your kid's school, like all that stuff is peppering us all the time. I want to tell you if you're a boomer in this room today, like this is helpful for your grandkids conversation. This is going to equip you so that you can talk with them with grace and truth. So this is why we have to walk through this thoughtfully because if there ever was some good old days where we could just say, well, well being gay is wrong because the Bible says so. Like that is no longer a, a good apologetic for the world that we're living in. It is not a good defense of what you believe to just say, well, the Bible says so. Because people are going to ask you, well, where? How do you know that word means what it means? And so let's look at it together. Leviticus chapter 20. In Leviticus, you're going to have two explicit commands that say homosexuality is not okay. That, that male-on-male relationships are, are not okay by God's good, right design. Now, before we read them, let's remember what Leviticus is. Leviticus is the, the moral code given by God for the people of God to live out, to be a, to, a, to be a contrary kind of people in the world. God says, you're going to live by this law. You're going to live by this set of rules. Okay? And know what it says in Leviticus chapter 20, in verse 13, it says, you, sh- you shall not I'm sorry, Leviticus 18, 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And that word lie with is sexual intercourse. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Well, that's strong. It's incredibly strong, right? I think that even as we go through this, I want to be tender towards those of you who have friends, loved ones, family members who are in this community right now. And to read these things about the Bible, what the Bible has to say, I think it immediately puts us in a posture of hopelessness. But we have to remember, I'm sharing the gospel here at the beginning, not at the end. Jesus has made a way for even the people who are farthest away from him, walking in most outright defiance to him. He has made a way for them to be saved by grace, not by their own effort, not by their own doing. We just read it in Ephesians chapter 2 when Caden did the exhortation that they are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. It is him who washes them, sanctifies them, justifies them. It is he who changes them from the inside out. Amen? And so keep that posture of hope alive, please, throughout the sermon. But we read in Leviticus that it is, it is an abomination is the word that's used. Right? In, in the progressive argument, what they will say is, well, it's just the Old Testament. It's just the Old Testament. Like we don't live by the Old Testament law anymore. We live now in the grace covenant with Jesus, which to that I would say, Yes and amen. We absolutely do. But which parts are we talking about? Because the Old Testament, the the Mosaic law, it breaks down into a few different categories. There is the moral law, which is all the Ten Commandments and all the different rules that are given throughout the book of Leviticus. There are the ceremonial laws that are given that Caden uh, expounded on for us a few weeks ago, where he just did a great job showing us that he could preach better out of Leviticus than I'll ever be able to, right? But there's a ceremonial law. There's cleansing processes. there, There are the main point of the book of Leviticus is the holiness of the people of God. And so there are provisions for when they step out of that holiness so that God may make them holy again, right? So they had these cleansing rituals that they would go through. And so when the progressive person says like, well, hey, homosexuality, like that's just, that's just an Old Testament idea. Like in the New Testament, we're all under grace. We've been saved by grace. You know, like in the same way that you and I can eat bacon and shellfish. Praise God, by the way, Right? 
But like, listen, why is that? Well, it's because of this. We still abide by the moral law. The ceremonial law, the cleansing rituals have all been made fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus on the cross. Then you have the civil law. How, how Israel was called to operate and to judge as a theocracy with God as their king. Uh, priests right under them serving the people. Whereas we have people who elect officials who abide by our governing documents, the constitution, right? So we are not a theocracy. God hopefully is your king, but he is not the United States king. We do have a president. We have a Senate. We have a house of representatives and Congress. Those are our elected officials. So while there may be good principles for any nation to glean from the civil law that was in Leviticus, like they are not they are not sinful for us to not operate and to like organize a country around the ways that they judged people, the ways they ruled and, and lorded over different people in their nation. Does that make sense? But the moral law never goes away. The moral law, there are, there are pieces and echoes of the moral law before we're even given it in Leviticus. There are, there, and then Jesus, when he comes, he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And what he's saying in that is he's going to fulfill all the ceremonial, ceremonial process but he's also going to ratchet up the law to not just be some, some thing that's written on stone somewhere, but it's actually inscribed on our hearts so that we know when we're grieving him by, by acting contrary to his word. Does that make sense? Jesus quotes Leviticus 19 more than any other Old Testament passage. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a moral law that was given in the Old Testament, given by God through Moses for the people of God. And Jesus says, hey, that, that's, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest piece of the whole law. He doesn't come to get rid of the moral law. He upholds it. So that's why the progressive argument doesn't work there. Then we move to the New Testament. New Testament, Romans chapter one, we'll start there. It says, for this reason, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the man likewise and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now what the progressives will say here is that this is more about sexual excess than it is about homosexuality. They're saying this is more about lust. This is more about being consumed with sexual excess. And, and I think to, to a point here, they're right. This passage has a lot to teach about even heterosexual excess, not just homosexuality. But where progressives are wrong is assuming that's all it's talking about is sexual excess. You, you have to know in, in the book of Roman, Romans, Paul is writing like his theological masterpiece, right? In, in Romans 1 through 3, he's making the point, Jewish, Gentile, anyone in between, all you people, you're damned without the work of Jesus. That's what he's trying to say. And so he's saying that as you choose to neglect God's good right design, as you take the truth about God, which has been made plain to all of mankind, is what it says in Romans chapter one. They, they take that and instead becoming gods in their own eyes. So we're elevating our own moral standard. We're elevating our own way to save ourselves. We're raising that up. We're becoming God in our own eyes and say, I'm just gonna do what I want. I'm just gonna do what feels good. I, this is how, who I want to be. We suppress the truth about God is what it says. And in suppressing the truth about God, in his grace and in his wisdom, he gives us over to the desires of our heart, which is terrifying. Because as we say, God, I don't want your way. I don't want your way. I don't want your way. He's gracious and he's kind and he's in pursuit of us. And eventually he goes, but in my wisdom, I'm gonna let you pursue what you wanna pursue. And I'm gonna give you over in your debased thinking. That's Romans chapter one. And it says, for this reason, for the reason 
that he gave them up. Now all of a sudden they've made the exchange for what was natural to something now that is unnatural. And to say this is only about sexual excess misses the point that Paul's rooting his entire argument in the creation story. He's saying, hey, there was a natural created way that the world works. And once you make once you make God in your own image, once you suppress the truth that he has revealed to you, now all of a sudden you're gonna make exchanges that are now unnatural. Does heterosexual excess do that? Does lust that burns in you do that? Uh, yes, it absolutely does. You let lust live in your heart too long and it will take you places you never wanted to go, right? But it's not just be talking, he's not just talking about that. He's also condemning a certain kind of behavior and that is female and female relationships, male and male relationships. So that's what it says in Romans. Then we have two left, 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. We read this one last week. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, now who did that just condemn? Every single person in this whole entire place. Are we on the same page with that? Nope, nobody goes through that list and is unscathed. He got us all just by listing through that. But look what it says then. And such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you have been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Praise God. It was not you that saved yourself. So therefore you can't boast about your salvation because it was Jesus who saved you in the middle of all that stuff. Even while you were dead in your trespasses and sin, God has made us alive together in Christ. So we, even when you chose to get baptized, it wasn't that you were unclean and you went down to the water and now somehow you come up and you're spiritually clean. No, Jesus washed you. Jesus sanctified you. Jesus justified you. He paid your bill in full so that you could have right relationship with God. And now what you're doing when you're getting baptized, you're going, you're telling the world, this is what's already happened on the inside of me. Now I'm just showing the world what has already gone on. But it does use this word homosexuality in that list. Nor men who practice homosexuality. In 1 Timothy 1.10, we see the same word used. Paul's writing to a young Timothy, young pastor in a, in a sexually broken world. He says the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so what you have here is now you have a pretty clear cut statement, especially in the English language, that homosexuality is being condemned by Paul in multiple places. Here's the problem though. The problem from the progressive side of things, from, from the progressive argument, is that, well, what does Paul really say about homosexuality? What, what is actually that word in Greek? And it's critical that, we would ask ourselves the same question. Not just what is the word homosexuality in Greek, but what, what does that actually mean in English even? Does it mean I'm just attracted to somebody? Does it mean that I live out in a behavior? Does it mean that I'm married to somebody? Right, what is homosexuality? And what the progressive movement will say is that Paul's actually, he's not actually being that clear here because he's using this really rare word. If you look at it, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, let's put that verse up on the screen. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The word there in Greek in 1 Corinthians for homosexual is arsenokoitai. That is the word that he's used. And, and, and this word only occurs two times in the New Testament. And scholars agree in the fact that there's not actually a lot of Greek work that surrounds this time for us to really pin down a good uh, explanation or, or argument for what that word means. But... When you consider who Paul was, right? Paul's a Pharisee before he gets saved by Jesus, before he gets, you know, Holy Ghost just knocks him off his horse and 
you know, is like, hey, I got other plans for you, bro. You're not going to be Saul anymore. You're going to be Paul, right? That's the story. Read about it in Acts. Different sermon for a different time. Paul's a Pharisee. He would have had the Torah. He would have had the first five books, the Pentateuch. He probably would have had them all memorized, okay? He didn't just endure Leviticus in his Bible reading plan every day. The dude memorized the whole thing, right? And so look, look what happens when you put up the, the word arsenokoitai, because it's not used that often. Paul seems to have coined this term himself almost. It's not used in a lot of other places. So what does it mean? Well, when you hold it up to the Leviticus, when you hold it up to the Old Testament, it says arsenos and koitin, you shall not lie with or have sex with, with a male as with a woman, koitin. Whatever, whoever shall lie with a male as with a woman puts us arsenos and koitin right next to each other. And you can see what Paul has done in his like literary ability, having a great handle on the Old Testament. He's just taken these two ideas, men and having sex with other men, and he just made a new word and put them together. It's not, scholars everywhere agree. It is crazy to think that Paul is not doing this in the way that he's writing the book of Timothy and how he's writing the book of 1 Corinthians. He's just, I mean, we do this all the time. I mean, you think about how the word like y'all got made. Like we're not confused about that, right? It's you and all. I have several different applications for sure. So it's kind of a bad example, but like, you're not like, oh my gosh, what do you mean when you say y'all? No, you're just like, okay, you're from Texas or something like that. And that's how you just want to be efficient in saying you all, right? Like Paul, Paul is brilliant. Paul's studied, he's a scholar. And so he's absolutely intentionally working these two words together to communicate something to the church in not just Rome, but to Timothy in Ephesus, both filled with sexual brokenness. And then the left will go ahead and say, the progressive movement will go ahead and say, well, Paul's not really talking about monogamous and committed same-sex relationships. And so what you'll have on the progressive movement, just so you're aware of what their argument's gonna be, is like, yeah, multiple partners is wrong. Yeah, acting like in a lust-fueled craze is wrong. But if you're living in a way where you're just in a committed, loving, monogamous relationship where you're each caring for one another, the Bible's not condemning that. And they'll hold that up and say, no, that's okay. Because what what is being talked about in Romans, what's being talked about in Corinthians, what's being talked about in Timothy, it's it's like slave to, to, to servant relationships. It's call boys, it's prostitution. It's people who are exploiting their power over another person. That's the only thing that was happening in Rome. Only it's not. Like N.T. Wright, who's probably one of the most profound living scholars of the New Testament, he says it this way. He says, in particular, a point which is often missed, they, the Romans, knew a great deal about about what people would regard as longer term, reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. In other words, we can study it historically in other settings outside of the Bible in this same time period. So that, that argument doesn't hold water because there are loving, committed, tender relations. Like I don't have all the time to go into it. Uh, this, a lot of this stuff with cultural stuff is all coming from a sermon from John Tyson that uh, is called Jesus and the Gay Community. We've linked all, that whole series onto our website, on the resources page on our web, website. I would encourage you, if you want to study more into this, press more into this, his sermon's like an hour and a half. So first of all, you're welcome. This one's going to be about 45 minutes, uh, but it is, it is entirely helpful. So he says, it's already there in Plato. We already see other examples of committed monogamous relationships back in Roman time. He goes on to say, the idea that in Paul's day, it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men or whatever. He says, of course, there was plenty of that. And he says, there is, there's that today. But it was by no means the only thing that was happening sexually in Rome. They knew about the whole range of options. He says, I think we've been conned to believe that they didn't because it's there and it's easily studied. So there you go. The Bible, 
while it is not abundant in its teaching on homosexuality, I do believe it's clear in its teaching on homosexuality. And that's why we as a church, we hold to the historical presentation on this issue, that marriage is designed to be a covenant relationship, a committed relationship, where it's just as much spiritual mystery as it is physical fact, where two become one flesh, male and female only. That's what marriage is. And that's, that is the container, again, to last week, that sex was meant to exist in. So I can think of a couple of object, objections right now. If, if you're sitting here, maybe you have them right now, or maybe you've heard them before. Well, it's like, well, yeah, but like, Austin, why, why do we have to do a whole sermon on this? Why can't we just leave people alone? Have you heard that before? Like, why can't you just let me do me, you do you? I really don't mind your religion as long as you don't tell me what I need to be doing, right? That is definitely the cultural climate we live in. It's like, hey, fine, you have your beliefs. So long as your beliefs don't impose on me, I'm fine with you having your beliefs. So why is it that you have to teach this whole sermon, this whole message on how we're called to think and how we're called to behave with that thinking? Well, to, to say that this is not a gospel issue would be a mistake. So I think back to week one, where I did the whole closed hand of theology, Apostles' Creed, Nicene's Creed. Like we believe these things. We believe this about Jesus. We believe this about God. We believe this about the Holy Spirit. We believe this is what sin is. That's key. People want to say, well, homosexuality, this debate, it belongs in the open hand. Like you can, you can be affirming or you can be progressive or you can be non-affirming. You can be historic. It doesn't matter. It's all open hand, just to each their own. I, I love this book, Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Albury. If you're interested in learning more, I would highly, it's like an 80 pager. Okay. So it's not even that hard of a read, which I just, I love that as a book. You know what I mean? He hand me like a 200 page book and I'm just like, oh my gosh, 80 pages is sweet. So anyways, here's what he says. He says, the Bible allows for disagreements on certain issues. He says in Romans 14, in verse five, Paul speaks about disputable matters and calls on his readers to be convinced in their own mind of what they think. So, so listen, don't make this the same as women in leadership. Don't make this the same as what kind of songs we should sing on a Sunday morning. No, he says, there are other issues that are non-negotiable, issues where the gospel itself is at stake. It says there's two passages that indicate homosexuality is a gospel issue. We've already read one of them, 1 Corinthians. We'll read it again. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So this is a kingdom of God issue. Those who are going to be in the kingdom are going to have a certain way of living and behaving. And those who are outside of the kingdom are going to have a different way of living and behaving. So right there we have, we can see if I'm going to allow somebody to persist in this behavior, then I'm going to allow them to persist outside of the kingdom. And that's not okay. We know that human flourishing happens within the kingdom. We know that it's good's good, God's good and right design to bring people into the kingdom. That's where life and life to the full happens. And so to let someone persist in a, in a behavior that is outside of the kingdom, it, it is evil of us not to talk about it then. Revelation 20, 220 is what he says is the other passage. This is Jesus speaking, a, a condemning word over the church in, in um, I think in Thyatira. He says, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now notice the condemnation is twofold from Jesus in his letter uh, to this church in Revelation. On the one hand, he's condemning this woman, Jezebel, because she has false teaching that's allowing people to exist in sexual immorality. And she also has false teaching that is allowing people to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. But his main condemnation is to the church that's tolerating it. And he's saying, you cannot tolerate this teaching anymore. She's leading people astray. So Sam, can, he concludes the thought this way. He says, so we are not to tolerate in our churches those whose teaching leads people into sexual sin. 
This is a gospel matter. If we allow this to be a matter of acceptable disagreement within our fellowship, Jesus will hold it against us. Some forms of tolerance are sinful. Listen to that last line. Let that sink in for just a moment. Some forms of tolerance are sinful. Listen, I want to be kind and encouraging to those of you who are tender towards this topic because you have people that you love dearly who are caught up in this lifestyle right now and you're losing hope and you're getting, you're getting disheartened and frustrated. I also want to be encouraging and challenging to the people who have people in their life and they're just refusing to speak up against it. You're refusing to stand for what is true. You've allowed yourself to bend or to never really take a firm stance with somebody. And I'm just letting you know, if this is a gospel issue, if this is a matter of the kingdom of God and not in the kingdom of God, heaven and hell, then we have to speak up. Is that delicate? Oh my gosh, absolutely it's delicate. It is so very difficult. It takes tons of humility. Even though I hold my position on marriage, even though I hold my position on um, homosexuality with, with clarity and with conviction, I still approach this topic with so much humility, so much humility. Because I don't know what it's like to be in these different camps. I don't know what it's actually like to have these feelings. But I know this, it's a gospel issue. It's the difference between a life with Jesus and a life without him. And I, I want a life for Jesus for every single person that I know in my life. So that's, convic that's question number one or critique number one. Well, oh, you know, um, like why do we have to tell everyone about this? Why do we have to push our agenda out there for the rest of the world to see? And there's why, because it's a gospel issue. Critique number two would be, well, Jesus never said anything about this. Uh, to that I would say, yeah, you're actually right. Jesus never address it, addresses specifically the issue of homosexuality that we have documented in scripture. He also never addressed polygamy. He never addressed polyamory. He never addressed pedophilia or pornography for all the P's there, right? There you go. Jesus didn't say a lot about a lot of different stuff, but he did say some things about marriage. And let me tell you this, before we even go into these two passages, I actually think, get rid of Leviticus. Give the progressives what they're saying about Leviticus, that it's just an Old Testament thing. Give them what they're saying, that it was just a thing for Rome. Let them have all that. You still have enough basis to stand on an argument just between Jesus' words here and the words that are uttered in the book of Genesis. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus answers. He's answering a question on divorce. There's teachers who are trying to allow divorce. There are teachers who are trying to be too strict on divorce. And they're like, Jesus, what's your teaching on divorce? He says, haven't you read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's literally just recounting the story out of Genesis chapter two. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He's quoting out of Genesis chapter two. And if we flip there, if you go to Genesis 2.18, I wanna show you there's a very specific word that you have to understand what it means. Genesis, up until this point, it has been God created and it's good. He made this and it's good. He made this and it's very good. And behold, at the very pinnacle of creation is Adam and it's very good and then it was not good. Something interrupts the pattern. It was not good that man should be alone. He had given Adam this commission. He'd given him this charge. Take the raw elements of the world, take everything around you and cultivate it into something beautiful. Be fruitful and multiply. And God says, it wasn't good for man to be alone because he couldn't fulfill the commission that I've given him to do. So he says, I will make a helper fit for him. Helper fit. That word in Greek is konegdo. And, and like, you have to understand that there is so much that is in this word. Preston Sprinkle writes it this way. 
He says the Hebrew word translated suitable by the NIV is konegdo. And it is only used here in the Old Testament, 2.18 and then again in 2.20. It says konegdo is somewhat difficult to translate into English since it is a compound word made up of ke, which means as or like, and neged, which means opposite, against, or in front of. He says together, the, means something, the word means something like as opposite him or like against him. There is this similarity and there is this contrast all wrapped up into this word. The writer of Genesis could have used any different kind of word to describe the relationship between Adam and Eve, but he uses this one to communicate that there is something similar between them and there is something incredibly different about them. And so it says, so here's the, here's the relevant point. If it were simply Eve's humanness that made her a helper, then the word like would have been just fine. The verse would have read, I will make a helper like him. But to make the point that Adam needed not just another human, but a different sort of human, a female, God used the word konegdo. He says this word, it, pot it, it potentially conveys both similarity, ke, and dissimilarity, neged. Eve is a human and not an animal, which is why she is like him. But she's also a female and not a male, which is why she is different than Adam or neged, opposite him. Listen, Throw out Leviticus if you want. If someone has you on the ropes with 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, Romans, all you have to do is look back to Genesis and say, no, God's original design when he put together the very first union between two people was as like, as opposite as. There's this, there's this stark similarity in that they're both human, but there's this contrasted difference in that one's a male and one's a female. That's all you need. That's God's design. That, is, that was God's intent from the very beginning. Now has sin entered into the world and made a mess out of a whole bunch of things? Yeah, absolutely it has. But don't, don't make the mistake that this was God's original plan. So what do we do? What do we do as the church? Again, my hope is not that just that you're coming in here to get filled up with information so that you can just go out there and have a head that won't fit you know, into your car door as you're leaving this parking lot. Hopefully what we're doing is we're receiving this information so that we can go actually live and behave in a certain way that's helpful to the world around us, Right? So here's where I want to go from here is Matthew 7, verse 1 through 4. It's Jesus' words saying, judge not lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Now this, this quote makes me frustrated. It gets misquoted all the time. It's like, hey, you just took out an $80,000 car note and you have a $20,000 a year salary. That's a bad idea. And someone's like, hey, don't judge me, you know? It's like, that's not judgment, dude. That's discernment. You're a moron, you know? Uh, listen, this gets passed as you can't assess right from wrong or you can't assess if someone's behavior is good or if it's bad. That's not what this verse is saying at all. That's not what this verse is saying at all. What this is saying is don't judge somebody as in don't look down on them with a position of contempt. Don't make somebody who thinks differently than you less than human as you think in a certain way and they think in a certain way. As soon as you dehumanize the person that you're arguing with, you've already lost because now you've started to judge them. And God's going to judge you according to the same measure in which you judge them is what Jesus is saying. No, but we are absolutely as Christians called to have discernment, to have clarity, to move with conviction, to know right from wrong. The, the trick is, is we don't operate in a way where we look down on people who don't think like us. Even if you're in this room and you're not a Christian today, there's no way that I can call you to a certain level of behavior because you don't have the empower, empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And so I can present things, but if you, the best bet you have, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, is you just have some sort of rugged moralism. We're going to try to act a certain way to look a certain way. And it's not going to save you. That's why we are all in desperate need of Christ. But listen, for those of us who are living in Christ, this is the challenge right now. 
Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? I just wonder, church, if we've made a patterned habit out of being critical of specks in other people's eye, being critical of other people's behavior, while we're just turning a blind eye to the sin that's in our own heart. Why do you see the speck that's in their eye and not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You know what this is saying? That if you're being a hypocrite and you're living your life in some kind of duality with some sexual sin that you're still holding on to and you're calling other people to repent and to change, what you're doing at best is you're failing to neglect that there's something in your eye that's keeping them from being able to receive the help that they need. Because look what it says. You hypocrite, Jesus says. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what's the, what's the hope here for the church? The hope here for the church is that if we pursue our sexual integrity first, if we start with us, then we actually have some hope in addressing the specks that are in other people's eye. We have some hope in helping people get things cleared up so that they can see Jesus more clearly, right? It says, Matthew 5, 27 through 29, this is where Jesus elevates the, his sexual ethic. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully, again, this is Jesus holding to the moral law of the Old Testament, but then ratcheting it up a hundredfold. Where he's like, it's not even about the physical act of adultery anymore. It's about what's happening in your heart. As soon as you look at someone lustfully, as soon as you look at somebody as if they are made for your consumption as another human being, you've committed adultery in your heart. And, and if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Wow, that's strong from Jesus, is it not? Uh, listen, I, I'm calling us church right now in Jesus' name. We cannot tolerate sexual sin going on in our life any longer. I, I don't think you have to take Jesus' words literally here. And you know, if you come to church next week with like no eyeballs and we're gonna know what was going on in your life, that's not what I'm saying at all, okay? <laughs> But I do think what Jesus is trying to make a point here is he's saying the sexual sin in your life, quit tolerating it. Quit holding hands with sin and pretending like nobody else knows about it. God, God knows. It's affecting your relationship with him. Don't, don't prevail in keeping on with this sin. Like expose it with somebody you trust. Get it out in the open. Ask for the Holy Spirit to put this thing to death and you take the dramatic step today in Jesus' name and be freed from the bondage that the, that the enemy's trying to hold you in because he wants to inhibit your relationship with Jesus. Be free in Jesus' name from that today. I would just ask that you would consider it and take it seriously. Quit holding hands. We're, we're gonna fail as our witness if we continue as hypocrites. We have to pursue our own sexual integrity first. Last thought, Ian Bounds, power through prayer. This isn't even about homosexuality. It's not about sexuality at all, but it's a good reminder for every single person. He says, what the church needs today is not just mere machinery or better. He does, we don't need new organizations or more and more novel method, methods, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use. Ladies, go ahead and insert yourself right there into that quote. Men and women of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machin machinery, but on people. He does not anoint plans, but men and women of prayer. Please hear me. I am just as frustrated and tired of the culture war that we're fighting as anybody else in this room. I have concerns. I'll even be honest with you. I have some fears in my heart for about raising my kids in the current climate that we're in today. What if somebody says this? What if somebody does that? What, what am I gonna do if this? Those, those fears creep into my heart just as well, church. I don't know they're in you as well. We're not primarily wrestling against flesh and blood. And so we should not primarily be engaging in a culture war alone. 
You should be pursuing sexual integrity in your own life first. And then please, for the love of Jesus, be in deep pursuit of prayer for the people who are affected by this. Be praying for them. Be praying constantly. Don't, don't stop. Keep praying. If you have a family member, you have a friend, keep lifting them up in prayer because it is not just a culture war that we're fighting right now. It's a spiritual one as well. And if we fail to neglect that, the longer we try to engage culturally without addressing the spiritual, without addressing our own heart first, we're gonna keep losing day in and day out. But church, come on. Next few weeks, here's what we're gonna talk about. How do, we, how do we live this out well? How do we engage with the world around us? It's the way that Jesus did it. I'll, I'll give you my sermon for the next few weeks right now in one sentence. We're full of grace and truth. Jesus didn't exist on this spectrum of grace and truth where it's like grace is over here, truth is over there. Well, I'm just gonna walk this tightrope in the middle. No, no, the Bible says that he was full of grace and full of truth. That's how we're called to live. And that's how, like, listen, you want to engage the culture in this issue. You want, you want to start making a difference in the world around you? Pursue your own sexual integrity first. Get on your knees and pray. And then let's start actually getting involved with the people's lives that are in our lives right now. Amen? Let's stand. I'd love to pray. Only about nine minutes over this service. That's pretty good. So sorry about your lunch but I'm not apologizing. Um, okay. Lord, we just love you so much, God. And we, and we want to see people come to you. I pray right now, even for the people who are maybe in this room and they're struggling with some sort of sexual brokenness right now, and they've never even confessed it. They've never talked about it with anybody. God, I pray for freedom in Jesus name. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you empower us? Would you indwell us? Would you lead our desires, lead our affections away from things that cause harm and towards you? God, I pray that we would be the church uh, that is like a city set on a hill that can't be hidden, that our light would shine in this world, in our workplaces, in the schools we live in. God, help us influence the culture towards you. Help us stand strong on your truth, but help us also be filled with compassion and grace. Help us grow in grace, Jesus. We love you and we need you. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen.